So World Book Day this week on Thursday, and our episode today is book themed. But Mary, how's your reading been going last year or so? How many books do you think you got through and what sort of stands out in terms of some of the themes and, and titles you've read? So I think I've read more this last year than for a good number of years. I used to be a real bookworm when I was a child, but I haven't been so good at reading recently. The difference in the last year, and partly because of the podcast, to be honest, is that I've read a bit more nonfiction. So I've historically much preferred fictional books, hadn't read all that much nonfiction, but I've really enjoyed, I tend to try and have two on the go. So I'll have a nonfiction one and I'll have a sometimes fairly trashy fiction one, just as a bit of sort of like relief. And sometimes when reading those heavier subjects, particularly things like why I no longer talk to white people about race, that sort of thing. So such serious subjects in there that actually having something that was, in fact, just rereading childhood books, I found alongside that was quite a comfort in a way. That's so interesting because I'm the complete opposite to that normally. So in years past, I've been very heavy on the nonfiction. And in fact, one of my former colleagues used to take the mickey out of me quite heavily for not having hardly any fiction at all in my reading this. But I figure like the last year or so, a little bit of escapism has been quite a nice thing to have. I've definitely topped up on the fiction in the last year or so. I read a couple of good ones by an author called Lucy Foley, who was in the, she was in the top 10 paperback fictions, I think, for a while. The book was called The Guest List. It was a bit of an airport fiction type read, but it was very worthwhile reading. That was good. So that was, yeah, adding a little bit of that to my diversified reading portfolio, as well as I tend to read quite a lot of books about cycling for some reason, especially the sort of Lance Armstrong era type books, and then just a variety of all sorts of different things. Fantastic. Well, on a slightly more serious, I guess, of that range of books today and bringing it back to the theme of investment. But yeah, really enjoyed this one, actually. Yeah, exactly. That little known investing fund genre of books we are going to this week for our book club episode. Indeed. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So today we are discussing the book, When the Fund Stops, the untold story behind the downfall of Neil Woodford. And this is a very special episode because I'm delighted to say that we've got the author, David Ricketts, joining us for the conversation. David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Welcome, David. Yeah, it's really a first for us, isn't it? Doing a book review with the author. Fantastic. So really looking forward to the discussion. David, before we kick off, could you just give the listeners a bit of a feel for your role and your background, I guess, what brought you to writing this book? Absolutely. So my day job is I'm the asset management correspondent at Financial News. So that's the Dow Jones owned publication that predominantly focuses on on the city of London. And I've been there for the last four years covering fund management. I've actually been covering fund management for over a decade now in, in previous roles I've held. So it's really kind of covering the movers and shakers in the investment management industry, what they're up to in terms of how they're responding to regulation or products launching, etc. But really, this opportunity, I guess, if you like, to, to write the book about Neil Woodford came about only in January last year. So it's actually been quite a quick turnaround oh, wow. for me in terms of writing the book. So luckily, you know, Neil Woodford is somebody that I followed throughout my career. So kind of delving into his backstory and what happened with his investment empire and the collapse was actually quite an easy routine, if you like, compared to maybe some of the other people I followed over my career. Cool. Well, we're just super keen to get started and start discussing the book. But before we do, David, why don't you just tell us one thing we should know about you that we won't find on your CV? 
I've been racking my brain to think about what I could tell you. There's not on my CV. And I think as we're talking about Neil Woodford, one of the things actually that I found interesting as I was doing my research on him was actually I discovered I had something in common with Neil Woodford. And while Neil Woodford was at school long before he entered into fund management, before he even considered becoming an investment manager, he had a passion for aviation and actually wanted to become a pilot. And actually, as a youngster myself, growing up under the flight path of Heathrow, I had a very similar <laughs> dream and aspiration. I even did some work experience at the flight training department of British Airways when I was about 15. And I even got to fly in one of their flight simulators. I think it was a Boeing 777 aircraft. I unsuccessfully took off and landed in. <laughs> but yeah, unfortunately, my physics and sort of mathematical skills weren't strong enough. So I had to pursue other avenues. But, but yeah, I suppose that's one thing, you know, isn't on my CV that perhaps I can share with you. That's really interesting. And actually, that was part of the book that I really enjoyed reading is the sort of very early life of Neil Woodford. And I'd met him in terms of doing equity research at LCP. But you heard people refer to him as having a quite a military type approach. And actually reading that early part of his life in your book kind of really brought that out, I thought. That's right. Yeah. I think it was one of the things I was very keen to do in writing the book was focus on the rise of Neil Woodford as much as the downfall as well. I think going back in time and really getting to know him as a youngster and how he entered the fund manager industry, yeah, as you say, having having had that kind of passion for other things in his earlier life was really quite interesting and, and really important to get to understand him and, and how he sort of made a success of his name. Cool. All right. Well, just to get us into the conversation now, and I know Mary and I are both really intrigued and keen to understand a little bit about your sort of process of writing the book. I suppose in, in that, I guess we're interested in why this book, why now, first of all, and then your process of getting interviews, how cooperative did you find people and, and all those sort of things. So I was, as I say, approached by the publisher back in January last year. They'd actually come across a piece I'd written about Neil Woodford. I think it was more of a, a feature piece about the struggles that he was going through at the time. His fund was in crisis by that stage. And they really kind of approached me and said, this is something we're really keen to develop. And would you be interested in sort of taking on this project? I mean, little did I know back in January last year that obviously the onset of coronavirus and the pandemic and working from home would actually pose its own challenges. But actually, it was quite an interesting time for me to take on a book writing project because obviously I had a lot of time working at home. I could spend evenings and weekends sort of really focused on researching and writing this book. It was really, a, I suppose, a combination of things that, that led to Neil Woodford's downfall, which has made this such an interesting story. And as, as you say, Mary, I mean, he really kind of made a name for himself during his earlier career. And it was inconceivable, really, when you think about the amount of money he oversaw when he was at Invesco, in excess of £30 billion across two main funds. And he had a huge following, a huge kind of interest among retail investors. And he was somebody who was considered to have the Midas touch. You know, everything that he touched pretty much was a success. And the stories around him avoiding the dot-com bubble, bursting, he stuck to the traditional large cap stocks, tobacco companies that served him so well. And also he avoided the financial crisis because he didn't hold any of the bank stocks as well. He was lauded by the financial press, the retail investor sort of cohort, if you like, and he, he earned this nickname of the Oracle of Oxford, a comparison that was made to Warren Buffett, the legendary US investor. So this is kind of what made the story so interesting is somebody of Neil Woodford's standing, you know, the downfall was so unexpected. You know, one of the reasons I decided to take on this project was actually this is a story where the impact is still being felt today. There are still hundreds of thousands of investors who are still waiting for 
payments from that fund. It's still in the process of being wound up. Some of the most illiquid assets in that fund are yet to be sold on and money raised from that. You mentioned you did a lot of this work during the lockdown period you've had over the last year. So, I mean, how easy did you find it getting interviews with people? Did you manage to track people down sort of in the way, I suppose, one normally would for this kind of book? One of the great things about being a journalist, and I think one of the key things about being a journalist, is when you speak to people, ideally you do it face-to-face. You can, you can tell a lot from somebody, the response they give to you in terms of their body language. And obviously, everyone is very used to doing Zoom calls now and everything working from home. But there is certainly something that's lost in not having that physical face-to-face contact with somebody. I mean, for me, I was lucky enough in the sense that having covered Woodford and his firm for some time, I knew a lot of the key players to speak to. I kind of knew who they were, who to target. That's not to say that everyone wanted to speak to me because this is a topic that's still quite raw for a lot of people that work with Woodford. It's, it can be quite controversial. It involves a lot of uh, key individuals, people that are close to certain people within Woodford's they didn't want to speak to me at all. So I did come up against a lot of resistance, people telling me that it was actually too early to write a book. And also, what else can we say? I mean, this story has been played out in the financial press for some time, and it almost feels like everything has been said that needs to be said about Woodford. But actually, I did find there were a lot of people who were willing to speak to me about this, whether that was because they wanted to clear up some sort of myths or misconceptions about Woodford. It did take a lot of persistence, a lot of kind of ringing around, knocking on people's doors, figuratively speaking, to get them to speak to me. A lot of knockbacks as well. People just told me to buzz off really in, in sort of a polite way. And I hope that those people who told me there wasn't anything more to say have re- will read the book and think I've done a good job telling the story. And actually, they've learned something new or they can take something away from the book that perhaps hasn't been reported before. One of the things I was most surprised about or pleased about with this book was actually getting insight into a young Neil Woodford and speaking to people that went to school with him, for example, which which I found really fascinating because this may come as a surprise to some people, I don't know, but I've never actually met Neil Woodford. So one of the things I really had to get to grips with was trying to understand him as a person or get to know him as a person more than anything else. So that involved going back to yeah, speaking to people who knew him at school. I spoke to his first boss in fund management as well to get a sense of what he was like as an upstart, what kind of role he was doing. Did he see any potential in New Woodford at that stage? I even spoke to his ex-wife as well for the book, which was actually quite crucial in providing an insight into how life changed for Woodford when he became almost an overnight success, if you like, in the late 90s. And obviously with that success came a lot of personal wealth and passion for racing Ferraris, buying a country estate with staff. So all of that packaged together really gave me a good insight into how life really evolved for Neil Woodford as this kind of young Berkshire schoolboy who was very passionate about sports and sort of very athletic at school, a very high achiever by all accounts. How that kind of boy rose up the ranks in the city during the late 80s and how he made a name for himself at Invesco. So I think it was really important to get an insight into his passions and hobbies as well, which hopefully provides a lot of colour on Woodford in the book as well. It certainly does. I mean, you, you say you haven't met him. I suppose the obvious question, and you, obviously you say in the book he didn't read the manuscript, but presumably did you approach him and just had no interest in talking or yeah. didn't get any response? I mean, I, I, out of a courtesy, just sort of flag up to Woodford that I was writing a book about his life and career and kind of the reaction I got back was, this isn't something he's going to talk about. So that's kind of your first obstacle, I guess. Not unexpected, obviously, because Woodford is one of these kind of key figures in the fund manager industry that doesn't really do a lot of work with the media as such. He's very vocal on certain issues where he sees there's a need to be. 
but I think he's someone who's quite understated and at times in his career hasn't really put his head up above the parapet unless he really has to. So it didn't come as much as a surprise. I was expecting that, but it was from that point on just thinking, well, how else can I get to really understand him as an individual and what went on within his firm? So yeah, luckily I had all these people around him who were keen and willing to speak to me. Just to tie off maybe on the writing process, you mentioned trying to jazz up an investment book. I mean, who in particular were you writing this for, I guess? I mean, it, obviously, it does seem pretty accessible. To us, to me, it would seem you tried to jazz up an investment story for anyone, really. Yeah, that's right. And I think the one key thing I want to do when writing this book, I mean, as financial journalists, I feel like we probably know this story very well. We can kind of get away with using jargon and complex terms and, and phrases, etc. But I was very keen to focus on the savers, the individual savers in Woodford's fund who not necessarily would have a great understanding of investment, but also Neil Woodford as a fund manager. They may have just seen his fund promoted on one of the investment platforms and decided to invest with him because of his strong track record. But they may not have had any sort of prior knowledge of his life at Invesco or what he did before that. So I've tried to target this book towards the kind of lay individual, the lay investor, if you like, someone who doesn't have much investment expertise or knowledge or who knows the lingo and the language. And yeah, make it as accessible as possible, because I think it's important that anyone who was affected by this can dip into this book and find it interesting, but understandable as well. Let's talk about Woodford's career then. And I guess let's start with the rise, if you like. So you mentioned already, David, the comparisons that were made between Woodford and Warren Buffett. And I guess the impact of that sort of comparison, I I suppose Woodford had to have had an element of success before that sort of comparison gets made. But to what extent do you think the comparison then propels him further on because people have heard of Buffett and they think, oh, well, if it's another Buffett, then I really should stand behind this guy? Yeah, I think you're right. I think the comparison to Buffett, I mean, this is one that gets rolled out again and again. And I think it's probably a fair comparison. I mean, as I said, during, during his time in Vesco, the, I think there's this stat that gets rolled out quite a bit about the £1,000 put with Woodford in the late 80s would have grown to about £25,000 by the time he'd left. So that's an investment return that anyone would be pleased with. And I think he certainly was a force to be reckoned with. I mean, there are stories about as a large investor in some of these companies, I think that one of the examples that gets rolled out is his investment in BAE systems, where he's almost the guy calling the shots here when it comes to any disagreement with management over how the company is run. Woodford would call in the company bosses to his headquarters in Henley rather than going to see the boss of a company in London, for example. So he was an investor that everyone wanted. But with that came a lot of, I suppose, pressure, knowing that you had to keep on the right side of Neil Woodford. If you upset him, then he would let you know about it. And yeah, he certainly wasn't shy in expressing his opinions if he disagreed with management. Yeah, so I think he, he certainly was a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, and a lot of his success did come from as I, as I said, investing in some of these well-known large cap companies. Tobacco stocks were one of the ones that really held him in good stead over the course of his career. He made a fortune sort of backing tobacco companies. I think it came off the back of an investment report back in the 90s, which actually showed that tobacco companies were vastly undervalued. And I think Woodford at the time was somebody who latched onto this and made a fortune off the back of it. Interesting today, because obviously tobacco companies are now, we talk about ESG investment, then tobacco companies are, are probably the ones that you'd want to avoid in an investment portfolio. But at the time, they certainly propelled Woodford to the top of his game. And before we get to the downfall bit, because that's obviously where the story starts to get juicy, but let's just stick on the rise for a little bit. I mean, you made a great point in the book about this stewardship effectively, about the work you did do on stewardship, and you just alluded to it there. 
And that was interesting because that, I think, was during a period of time when stewardship almost went a little bit out of fashion and it almost became a victim of the disintermediation that happened in investing over that period of time where end investors ended up getting quite divorced from the companies they were investing in. And a lot of fund managers kind of saw them as numbers on a page, the rise of quant investing sort of thing. And those conversations weren't being had. That We've come full circle, I think, and today, 2021, those are now conversations being had more often. But he was providing a very strong stewardship role during that period of time, as you said, in mergers and takeovers and being quite activist. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think you've hit the nail on the head there when you say today in 2021, stewardship is the one topic when you ask a fund manager what their key priorities are. Yes, stewardship is right up there. So was he ahead of the curve? I don't know, but he certainly was very vocal on some of those issues you mentioned and wasn't sort of shy in voicing his opinion. I think he actually, he made a comment in the K review as well, I think at the time saying that he was one of the very few fund managers actually to take stewardship very seriously. So whether he's blowing his own trumpet at that point, I don't know. But yeah, he, he certainly was somebody who was taking these kind of issues to heart and, and was certainly pressurizing or putting pressure on management to change their ways if he saw something that he didn't agree with. So yeah, again, it goes back to the point about him being a sort of force to be reckoned with. And I think there are a lot of companies that incurred the wrath of Neil Woodford if they fell on the wrong side of him. The other point that you mentioned actually in the context of him being a bit of a force to be reckoned with. So he had company management coming to see him in Henley when he was at Invesco. And obviously when he set up his own shop, he set that up in, well, a business park on the outskirts of Oxford. I went to research Woodford Investment Management at that business park. And so you get this lovely train journey to Oxford and then you get a taxi that just takes you out of the pretty part and out to the business park. But he always did make a big thing of the fact that he wasn't distracted by the city because he was specifically located outside of the city. And I guess from the work that you do generally following the movers and shakers, do you think that has legs? Do you see that elsewhere or is that really a, is it a Woodford thing and he's sort of stuck by it, but you don't really see many other people quoting that sort of reason? I think it's certainly unique to Neil Woodford. I mean, you're absolutely right. That that retail park he set up in Oxfordshire for his, for his new venture. I mean, somebody told me that the sort of closest pub to it was like a beef eater across the road and it was opposite a shell garage. It was a very unglamorous location, if you like, for a company that would be investing billions of pounds in some of the largest companies in the UK and, and tech startups. But you're right. I mean, this was something that goes back to Woodford's earlier career when he started at Perpetual before it became Invesco Perpetual. The founder of that company, Martin Arvid, who was a famous racehorse owner at the time, he wanted to set up a, a company that was on the outskirts, well, way away from the city, free from the distractions of the city of London and kind of all the I suppose the frustrations and everything else to go with that. And that was something that really appealed to Woodford. He was living quite close to Perpetual at the time when he applied for the job. There's some nice colour in the book I go into there about at the time he applied for a job at Perpetual, I think Woodford was getting a coach to work in the city at a previous job, I think at Eagle Star Fund Management. And he wanted the job closer to home and he found this place just a stone's throw away from he was living. So I think once he got into that culture, he really absorbed himself and he really liked it. And Talking to people who worked at the firm when Perpetual was bought by Invesco, Woodford was one of the key players that actually insisted that they remain in Henley rather than move to a city office where Invesco was based, I think, near, near Finsbury Square. So he was instrumental in kind of keeping the staff at Henley, and yet he carried that on to his new venture. For what it's worth, I think it is a good thing quite often getting fund managers away from the city. I mean, we've done episodes on groupthink and conformity and things like that. And I do think there is a huge amount of both of those things at work in the city, as well as a lot of sort of exclusionary practices that kind of 
implicitly or explicitly exclude large parts of society from sort of participating in it. I think it can be a good thing and you do see it now and then, maybe we'll see it more in the future. And I must admit, I did chuckle reading the book when you were trying to sort of draw out the tension in some of these crunch conference calls that was taking place as the empire was crumbling around them and these huge amounts of money were about to be pulled. It was slightly difficult to summon probably the narrative tension that you wanted in this sort of slightly drab conference room in a business park just outside <laughs> Oxford. It wasn't some sort of gleaming spire in the city with oak panels and video conferences from New York and stuff like that on the wall. Yeah, that's right. I think the other thing to say about obviously choosing Oxford as a place for them to be based, I mean, people I spoke to said that actually this was only really meant to be a temporary outpost for Woodford until the business grew and developed onto another scale. So perhaps they would have chosen to move on from that business park. But the other thing to say is, of course, Oxford, a lot of the startups, particularly the bioscience or biomedical startups that Woodford invested in were based in Oxford as well. So he was very close to some of those firms, those startups that ultimately led to his fund running into trouble later on when he faced a liquidity problem. But that's probably another reason why he chose Oxford. And I think from speaking to people who worked at his firm, it seems to work well, actually. I think they were quite happy to kind of drive into Oxford. And it struck me that the vibe that they were trying to create was similar to a, a kind of tech startup as well. I mean, the use of Slack and the kind of in-house cafe and the kind of just a sort of laid-back approach to dress even, the kind of dress culture, people coming in in jeans and t-shirts and pullovers and everything else. This kind of relaxed vibe. So people were encouraged to work from home as well. So it had a very different feel to it. I think if you walked into, and Mary, maybe you found this when you walked into the building, but if you're comparing Woodford's business on that retail park to one in the centre of London, it probably had a very distinct, very different feel to it, which is something that Woodford wanted to achieve right from the outset, by all accounts. Yeah, very much so. It had a very different feel. Absolutely. Cool. Well, should we get to the juicy bit then? We'll get into the downfall. Let's not keep people waiting. (laughs) So, I mean, I guess there's a number of things to cover here. You go through them quite logically in the book in terms of the different aspects, but I suppose that's one of the fascinating things about the story in some ways, what I took away anyway. So many things came together, if you like, to sink the fund. What would you pick out as the kind of the first thing that sort of sparks the whole thing? I think the first thing to say was, this was a combination of events. I think it really started by sort of May 2017. This is when Woodford had reached the peak. So he was managing, I think, just over £10 billion of assets in that flagship equity fund. So that's a huge achievement, really, to draw in that much investment in such a short space of time. So he was firing all cylinders, doing really well. Everyone loved him. Performance was great. What started to happen was a lot of the large companies, in fact, that he was invested in started to post profit warnings and performance issues. And it was almost a bit of a cascading effect, actually. I think the first one of the first was Provident Financials, so the doorstep blend. They announced a profit warning. That was then followed, I think, by Allied Mines. There was an industrial heat. AA Group, that was another one of his most famous picks that also announced some troubles. Purple Bricks as well, that was another firm that ran its difficulty. And this really did come sort of very quickly in terms of the announcement. So it kind of took everyone by surprise in some respects. I think the initial reaction was, this is just bad luck. Neil Woodford will come back from this. This is just really about a poor performance and he's just been unlucky. And I think actually when you look at some of the coverage around his fund at that period, a lot of the investment analysts or the investment commentators you speak to as financial journalists were saying, this is just a short-term blip. He'll come back. He'll manage to come back from all this. I suppose the other thing that he was being met with at this point was that investors were becoming spooked by this coverage. So the more that the sort of large picks of the big investment stocks that he picked posted profit warnings or struggles, performance issues, 
the more retail investors were starting to worry and think, well, should I now cash in on my investment in Woodford? I've made some money. Maybe now's the time to get out. So what you also started to see in conjunction with these profit warnings and, and performance struggles at some of the large companies was investors were starting to pull their money in larger numbers. And I think it's in the book I mentioned here about the rate at which the money was being pulled from that fund, that flagship fund, really accelerated after sort of May 2017. I think it was growing every month from sort of a few million up to about a peak of 100, 100 odd million. So he was losing investors in huge numbers. And even his largest investors, the likes of Viva Investors, Jupiter, Charles Stanley, I think as well, they all started to pull money in huge chunks as well. So it wasn't just the retail investors he was losing confidence with, it was also the large institutional backers as well. So it was really a sort of a cascading effect, if you like. But I think that's probably the first sign of trouble was when companies started to issue these profit warnings in sort of a, almost like a domino effect, if you like, which really sparked investor nerves or jitters, if you like, and they start to pull money at an alarming rate. I think that's what kicked everything off. And that's interesting because I always had in my mind that it was partly the sort of the role of the retail investor, if you like, which obviously was a contributor. But I probably hadn't appreciated how many larger investors, institutional type investors were also starting to pull, getting spooked because you sort of think of it as you see a series of profit warnings, retail investors, fair enough, it's their own personal money and they might get spooked and they might pull their money out. But you'd sort of expect institutional investors to be a bit more sticky, obviously, as long as the thesis to hold that investment stayed true, which I guess is there's a question mark there. That's right. I think actually, having spoken to say one of the large institutional investors in the fund, Jupiter, they were putting their money in quite large chunks over, over a year or so. But one of the main concerns they had wasn't necessarily the profit warnings, the performance issues of the companies that he was investing in, the large companies. It was this style drift that Neil Woodford started to display. So he'd gone from being a manager that had focused predominantly on large cap companies, kind of stalwarts, if you like, of the FTSE 100, to start up more illiquid companies. So companies where the shares take a lot longer to sell. Now, that obviously means that that poses problems in itself. So if you're a fund manager with billions of pounds of assets, but smaller illiquid companies now form a larger portion of your fund, given that you're having to sell down your largest holdings to meet these withdrawal requests from investors, then your fund just becomes skewed towards these kind of startups and, and unquoted companies. And that was a concern that was expressed by a lot of the large institutional investors. So they start to see that Woodford was straying more into these illiquid companies. And that was a bit of a concern for them. They decided to get out because I think a lot of them could see the writing on the wall by that stage. And like you say, word cascade feels quite appropriate because you had these profit warnings. And then, of course, it switched to this issue around these illiquid holdings being really problematic. It's funny, actually, just as a quick side note, I guess we're talking about 2017 here, which is interesting, I think, because it's not like it was 2008 or something like that. We weren't in the midst of a big financial crash. A lot of these profit warnings were sort of happening in an otherwise reasonably friendly market period. So it's not like every fund was going down and lots of other people were having these issues. I guess it was a run of, yeah, I don't want to say bad luck. There was just a run of profit warnings that were very significant to him that wasn't happening in the wider market that sort of triggered that. That's absolutely right. I think one of the things you mentioned, Mary, about this role of the retail investor, and I think one of the things that Woodford has done on more than one occasion is blame a portion of some blame as well to the media as well in its coverage of his fund and how it all went wrong. So were investors kind of spooked by the kind of media coverage, if you like, of what was going on and were they kind of led to believe that he couldn't come back for all this? So should they pull their money? And I think that's probably a bit of a stretch. But I do think when you look at some of the larger investors, one of the big things we haven't talked about here is County Council, which was one of his most loyal 
investors. I mean, they followed him from his time at Invesco. And they had a huge sum of money invested with his large fund. They asked to pull their £240 million investment in June 2019. I think they were becoming more and more concerned by what they were reading in the financial press about some of his performance issues. And I mean, that was another issue that kind of led to his downfall because their request to pull that money in one go prompted Link Fund Solutions, who are the authorised corporate director or the administrator, if you like, of that fund, to suspend his fund, essentially. So giving him time to reposition the fund to more liquid holdings with the aim of opening it up at some point in the future and allowing people to access their money. But that was another big moment in Woodford's downfall is when this fund suspension occurred as a result of one of his largest and most loyal investors asking for its money back. And I think that, that to me gets onto one of the crucial points because the role of Link, I think that was really interesting for me to read that in the book because that wasn't sort of totally clear to me in real time that the roles and responsibilities there. And I guess understanding a little bit more about who Link were, what they actually did, maybe at the time I might have thought, oh, they were just some back office kind of function that he was outsourcing a bunch of trade management to or something. But actually it turned out they were absolutely crucial because they were able to suspend the whole thing and effectively call time on it. Yeah, that's right. I think this is one thing that, again, when I was writing the book, trying to explain the role of Link, and when I, when I use the term authorised corporate director, that's the kind of stuff I want to get away from because it sounds very technical <laughs> and very jargony. But yeah, essentially, that's the role. their role is to kind of oversee the fund. I mean, they are, interestingly, and maybe this is something that a lot of people didn't realise, was actually they're the ones who are accountable and answerable to the FCA. So Woodford is the guy who has his name above the door, his name on the fund, but it's actually Link who is answerable to the regulator. So they're the ones who have the investor interests at heart and they took the decision to suspend the fund because they thought it was in the investor's best interest to do so and it would have given Woodford more time to position that fund to more liquid stocks and sell down some of those smaller liquid holdings and really sort of help that fund to reopen several months down the line. Now obviously that suspension was never lifted of course we know that and obviously Link decided in October 2019, so four or five months after it suspended the fund, that it would be in investors' best interest to just wind it up and return the money to investors. So they didn't feel that Woodford was in a position to open that fund again. Woodford would have argued otherwise. I mean, I think even now he still disagrees with Link's decision to wind up the fund. I mean, he always felt that he was on track to reposition that fund and have it open again by the end of 2019. But he feels like he wasn't given the opportunity to do that. So, yeah, who knows? I mean, things may have been different if that fund wasn't wound up and Woodford was given the chance to reopen it because actually some of the stocks, some of the smaller companies that he invested in have actually gone on to generate quite interesting and quite strong performance. So we will never know. But obviously, linked to that decision as the administrators, the ACD, to wind up the fund and return the money to investors. And as I said at the outset, a lot of investors are still waiting for payments from that fund. And it's been in the process of being liquidated, but there are still chunks of assets that still need to be sold off. So thinking about what can we learn, the point that there are still some investors waiting for their money back, I suppose, really focuses the mind, doesn't it? So I've been trying to think of sort of some of the key takeaways from the story, what we can learn and sort of put in place for the future. So I guess there's the sort of key man risk, as we describe it in the investment world, the fact that so we've got this fund manager who is iconic, his name is above the door, as you just said, but clearly that means there's a lot of focus on that one person making decisions and actually building this entire empire around him rather than being at a bigger firm like Invesco does even more focus everything on his decision making. And do you think that there is therefore, I mean, 
key man risk obviously has the word risk in it but do you think that actually there's merit in a team-based approach or key man can work absolutely fine you just need to keep tabs on it I suppose this is a really interesting question because I think to me key man risk I go back to some of my previous coverage of the industry we can look back at PIMCO for example when Bill Gross left PIMCO this culture of the staff fund manager has certainly been on the down probably on a downward spiral ever since I mean a lot of Asset managers you speak to now try and get away from that star culture, as you say, to more of a team-based approach, because I think having all responsibility resting on the shoulders of one individual can be quite dangerous, not only for investors, but also for the reputation of a firm. If one person who's responsible for such a large chunk of your assets under management decides to up sticks and move on and, and set up their own venture, then obviously that chunk of assets is certainly at risk as well of walking out the door from a retail investor perspective it's almost easier to understand you are buying the person if you understand the person then you know what you're getting into whereas a team-based approach from an institutional perspective you can spend lots of time understanding how that team dynamic works but as a retail investor maybe it's harder to sort of cut through that exactly i think the other thing to say about this is of course with a team-based approach you can obviously ask a lot more questions and challenge a fund manager and not be afraid to ask difficult questions. I think one of the things maybe with Woodford, there wasn't that kind of level of challenge that you would have expected in a company that does have more of a team-based approach to things. Yes, certainly that's something that perhaps could have been that's something that comes through really strongly in the book. I think one of my favorite phrases in the book, there was the expression, the cocktail of hubris and arrogance or something. I think that's a direct quote as well that you're taking from one of his clients or a fund analyst, maybe, sorry, perhaps. But you talk about the telltale signs of kind of compliance managers coming and going at Woodford IM. And I guess oftentimes compliance is something that doesn't necessarily get a whole lot of scrutiny and headlines when you've got still fund managers taking the headlines. But that, I suppose, was a bit of a telltale sign, wasn't it? That he just wasn't putting up with any kind of real oversight into what was going on. And that might have been a red flag for people. I think the compliance issues, that was certainly something that was raised by some of the larger investors I spoke to. One of the reasons they wanted to get out of the fund was because they had concerns about the kind of turnover, if you like, in the compliance function. But I suppose it's important to say that when Woodford was at Invesco during the latter years, I suppose one of the reasons he wanted to perhaps branch out and venture into his own business was he wanted to have more freedom to invest in some of these startup companies. And I think during the end of his career at Invesco, a committee had been set up to try and keep a check on some of the investments that he was starting to make into these smaller companies. Not because he was doing anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with investing in some of these smaller companies, but it was you know, asking more sort of probing questions about the rationale. Why are you so interested in these companies? So I think that comes with any large organization. You're going to have more of an overbearing compliance function than perhaps we would do in a smaller organization where you've got maybe two or three key individuals who are responsible for challenging you. So I think one of the attractions, perhaps for Woodford moving on to his own organization, his own outfit, was the fact he had more freedom to do this stuff. You make the right point there, actually, because there's a risk that some people learn the wrong lesson from all of this, which is that there's nothing necessarily wrong with investing in small companies or even unlisted companies. But the central point you make in the book is that there's an issue if you're doing that in a fund that offers daily liquidity, especially if it's a very large fund that then starts to suffer redemption requests, right? And I guess that's at the crux of this cascade is the fact that it was, I think you use another neat phrase, the fund is built on a lie or something, the fact that you can get your money out daily, but the underlying investments can't. Most of the time that works, some of the time it doesn't. That's right. I think that's a key lesson for anyone to learn. I think anyone who is interested in investing in funds should realize investment funds don't, despite offering daily liquidity, they shouldn't act as a sort of bank account or an ATM where you can get your money back at a moment's notice because there is always a risk with investment. Obviously, there are many risks involved with investing, but one of the big ones with funds is that a fund can be suspended. And again, there was nothing wrong with its 
perfectly within the rules to suspend a fund if it needs to be. We've seen that with property funds during Brexit and obviously with the onset of the COVID crisis. Those funds have been suspended because they have to be, because of the uncertainty around property investments. But what I would say is that this kind of promise of daily liquidity, investors just need to be mindful that things can go wrong that, that may lead to their money being trapped in the fund for longer than they were expecting. And one of the, I suppose, sorry stories to come from all of this is when you read the personal accounts of some of the individual savers who are investing in this fund, who'd locked money away because they wanted to spend it on the home improvements or weddings or holidays or giving money to grandchildren. They were no longer able to do that because they thought they'd get their money back at that moment's notice. And when the fund was suspended, obviously that prevented them from doing so. So I suppose that is one lesson to be learned is just when you do approach a fund, just be aware of the risks that if it does run into trouble, you may not get all your money back. But that's, that should be a basic question you're asking yourself anyway when it comes to investing. And actually you writing this book in a kind of slightly more popular fashion hopefully helps people to learn that lesson. I hope so, yeah. So as we start moving to the end of this session, what one thing do you want listeners to take away from this story? To highlight some of the failures around the oversight, whether it's kind of Neil Woodford himself, whether it's the FCA in its role, the financial regulator, or whether it's the investment platforms that championed Woodford right up until his business collapsed. And I think there are a lot of players or different actors in this story that still have a lot of questions they need to answer. So I just really want to kind of shine a light, if you like, on all of those different elements in this story. I hope that this will pile some pressure on the regulator to come up with some answers, because until we get that final report, it's very difficult to determine whether any lessons have been learned from all this. I hope they have, but we will have to wait and see what the FCA says. Great point. And David, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing generally about the whole story? As I've already said, one of the things I was keen to focus on the book was to focus more on as much on the rise of Neil Woodford as a downfall. I don't I don't want people to think that I've got a, a sort of agenda here and I'm trying to kind of ridicule Neil Woodford or paint him as a sort of villain, if you like. There are a lot of things that went wrong for Woodford. Obviously, retail investors have reasons to be very angry with him. But yeah, I hope the book doesn't portray him as a villain. It certainly wasn't my intention to do that when writing the book. And final question, David, do you have any recommendations for the listeners, books, TV shows, podcasts, anything like that? There's one book I've started to read most recently, which is Flash Crash by Liam Vaughan. It tells a story about Navinda Saros. He's the so-called Hound of Hounslow, who was tracked down by the FBI after his trading activities from his bedroom, in fact, at his parents' house in sort of London suburbs. It caused a crash in the US stock market in 2010. So he'd submitted several fake orders and bagged a profit of about, I think, $900,000 in one afternoon. And his actions caused a historical fall for the Dow Jones. Cool. All right. Well, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well, of course, a link to your book, of course, so that listeners can go straight to the notes page and go and find that if they haven't read it already. But that's been an absolutely great conversation. David, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. Thanks, David. That was really fascinating and also a really good read. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. Join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.